From the book of Amos, chapter 7, starting with verse 7. This is what he showed me, the Lord standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined with my sword and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer, go back to the land of Judah, earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from, from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to, the, to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up and you yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. The word of the Lord. From the book of Colossians, chapter one, starting with verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epiphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. Let's stand together for our gospel reading. A reading from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 10, starting with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Gosh, that Amos text this morning, huh? Um, I, uh, I think one of the things we're challenged by in the type of church service that we do here is the naked reading of Scripture, that when we read a text with no explanation and it's just read before us and no one is there to jump in and go, well, let me tell you what that means real quick then it challenges us, it, it sits with us, it's hard. I, I kind of resisted there during that Amos passage to kind of go, okay, all right, but let's talk about the love of God and um, how, but it's pretty harsh to hear you will, your wife will be a prostitute and you will die in a pagan land. That was the end of that passage. Um, but it is, we proclaim at the end of it, the word of the Lord. And we all say, thanks be to God for that. So we're going to just sit with that one this morning. But our text that I want to really focus on today is the text of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this, this parable is really one of Jesus's most lauded parables. It's one of the few passages that if you have very little engagement with scripture, you probably know of this one. Uh, but I was also surprised that this morning we were looking for the kids' lesson. None of the children's Bibles that we have have the Good Samaritan story in them. So I was like, all right, there's some gaps here. But um, the reason why this is lauded so much is this passage, this parable, has so many implications. It has so many implications for the mission of Israel for the Christian definition of neighbor and what that means, for the ethical issues in the church and how we engage with one another. And it's been foundational for really all Christian hospitality and mission. So that's why there are churches called Church of the Good Samaritan, right? There are hospitals that are called Good Samaritan Hospital in our country. So many of the medical missions that we've seen have this idea of the Good Samaritan with them because this parable has been so foundational. Luke's account here begins with an expert in the law approaching Jesus with a question. So this is a lawyer, okay? 
And we have to remember that lawyer in this time was not like a, there wasn't a secular law and a sacred law that were separated. They were really the same thing. So a lawyer, an expert in the law, was a religious leader as well who understood the religious law. So this is a scribe, a religious expert. And he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this question was really common question to ask rabbis at this time. In fact, it was kind of a litmus test question. So if you wanted to understand like politically and theologically where a rabbi stood, you would ask him this question. How do you understand the law? Tell me where you're at. We think that scholars think this is a trap. A lot of people are trying to trap Jesus and get him to respond in a way that they can label him as heretical or outside of the mainstream. So this is a bit what's going on here. Eternal life was a way of asking, what must I do to attain God's best life? What must I do to attain the best life that God has for me, to live in God's will fully and completely? And Jesus does hear what any good rabbi would do. He points him back to the law. This is the way that you were taught to be the people of God. The law is who you are as God's people, as Israel. So he says, what does the law instruct you to be? Who does the law instruct you to be? Who does it teach you to be? And this is so important because we have to remember that Jesus was not an isolated sage teaching religious things and had this kind of vision from God separate from any religion that he just kind of sprung up. No, Jesus was firmly in the story of Israel. In fact, Jesus was and is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. So the law is the fundamental axis that Jesus stands on. Jesus is within the Jewish tradition. And the man gives a standard response. So he says, okay, who does the law tell you to be? What does the law teach you to be about how to inherit eternal life? And the man says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus basically says, right, good going. Do this stuff and you'll live. That's the way to go. The revolutionary nature of Jesus is not that he departed from the Jewish law or was outside of the Jewish law, but that he reminded people of what the law was supposed to do in the first place. That he interpreted the Jewish law, he interpreted their vocation as Israel, their calling as God's people in a new way and in a fresh way that was fulfilled in himself. So what Jesus does is he pulls back all these layers that have happened among the Jewish establishment at that time of ethnocentrism, of pride, of self-trust, all of these things that had gotten in the way of them knowing who they were called to be in the first place, God's people to bless the world. And all of these things had gotten so much in them and in the establishment, they had permeated the Jewish temple system completely. And so what he reminds them is, let me remind you of who your God is in the first place and who you were called to be. So the text says that the man asks then another question, and he does so in order to justify himself. That kind of jumps off the page to us, that he wanted to justify himself. In other words, he wants to win the argument. He's not satisfied with, I asked him a simple question and he gave me a standard answer. No, I want to know something about you, Jesus. I have you here. I have an argument that I think that I can win. I think that I can prove you're a heretic. So he presses a little bit more. 
He wants Jesus to prove that um, he sees the law as having to do with only Israel and that everybody else other than Israel are outsiders. That's what he wants Jesus to say in order to be orthodox in his mind. So he asks him this question, okay, you say love my neighbor, all the standard stuff, but who is my neighbor? I am to love my neighbor as myself, but who is that we're talking about? Who exactly am I supposed to love, Jesus? <laughs> Will you give me the parameters of who I'm supposed to love and who I don't have to love, please? That's what he's asking. It's another one of these litmus test questions. Depending on how Jesus answers it, I might be able to trap him. This man is asking for a definition of neighbor. But asking for a definition of neighbor depersonalizes the neighbor. Loving neighbor became for this man a task to be accomplished, a means of control. Tell me who I am to love and who I'm not to love so that I can have control over the situation and I can inherit eternal life by my actions. That's what he wants to do. Jesus is calling the man and calling them beyond mere moral accomplishment. He's calling them into a new identity, to a new way of being defined by who God is. And Jesus' response would have ruffled all kinds of feathers. Why? Well, the concept of neighbor speaks to proximity. So if you look up the definition of neighbor, like in the Greek, lexicons and all that stuff, which I did this week, neighbor just means the person who's close to you or near to you, okay? There's not much more beyond that. It speaks to proximity. That's all it means. Love the one who's near you. Love the one who's close to you. Love the one who you encounter. That's, that's what it is. And love them as you would love yourself. Now, this was confusing for the Jewish people because most of the laws given to them involving neighbor were interpreted as having to do with their fellow Israelites, because those are the people initially who they live close to. So I'm supposed to love my fellow Israelites, all right? So that's why there caused so much controversy here. These are the ones I live in proximity with. But by the time of Jesus, and really any time after the exile and the scattering of the Jewish people, the Jews were living around many people who weren't Jewish, all right? So this definition of neighbor takes on a new reality, takes on a new implication. So who are we to love as ourselves? Are we to love our fellow Jews who are like us and are close to us and near to us or all these other people who live around us? Who are we supposed to love? In all this talk about neighbors, I couldn't help but think about Mr. Rogers. Anybody? Okay, good. For those of you who may not know who Mr. Rogers is, um, he had a children's program from the 1960s all the way through the 2000s, the early 2000s, called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which was groundbreaking. I watched this show every day when I was young. Um, and I, I'd recommend uh, I watch this documentary on his life, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Anybody seen that yet? Okay, a few of you have seen it. It's beautiful, wonderful. Um, and, and his show, really growing up and looking at this in retrospect, was really based on this concept of neighboring, right? Won't you be my neighbor was the tagline, even the song as he changes his cardigan sweater and his shoes, you know, every day. But it was this idea of citizenship and solidarity with those in need and kindness and compassion. In fact, some of his most powerful moments were in showing empathy to those who were hurting. There's one scene that I remember of a little boy in a wheelchair 
There's a whole story that's been unpacked with this. And the way that he asks him leading questions about the struggles that he's experiencing, but also the joys in his life is powerful. Um, In 1968, when Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed, Mr. Rogers had, and I never knew this, but there was a show dedicated to what is assassination? Couldn't even believe it. And walking through the feelings of children <laughs> as they're experiencing and watching on television what's happening. It's, it was powerful. It was amazing. Um, this was a show that um, was trying to invite children to ask questions and express even fear and pain. And it was about compassion and self-giving. Well, what you may not know is that Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister. Um, and he was ordained not to pastor a church. He wasn't sent by the Presbyterians to pastor a church, but specifically to go into the media world. So as I think about this, I wonder about this concept that was foundational to his show, Who is My Neighbor? If, if this parable of the Good Samaritan and this question of, and, and even this reality of love your neighbor as yourself was permeating um, his outreach, the core of his philosophy. But Jesus' parable doesn't give us a definition of neighbor. He doesn't say, here's who you love and who's, here's who you're off the hook from loving. Doesn't say that. Instead, it has more to do with the kind of people God's people are to be. The kind of people who don't need to define neighbor, but simply live love to the world. That's who Israel was called to be in the first place. So let's look at this story Jesus tells. A man is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this man is presumably a faithful Jewish person. That's who Jesus' hearers were. And so that's who we assume he's talking about here. And he's walking on a road which was known to be dangerous. And it was dangerous because of the animosity that existed between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. They hated each other. Okay, so this road that went in between the two was dangerous. The road through Jericho was more safe than the direct route going from Galilee to Jerusalem and back and forth, but this still was not very safe. And the man is attacked by robbers. Now, this story is supposed to evoke emotions of vulnerability and pain, okay? I don't know if you've ever been robbed before, right? Um, I guess we don't need to do a show of hands. That's kind of a weird thing to do, but, but if, you've, if you've ever been robbed, <laughs> um, you know that sense of vulnerability. I have two stories, neither of which are nearly as bad as this man on the road, but, and neither I will tell in detail today, but we were, first of all, we were robbed on our honeymoon, my wife and I, okay? And all of our stuff of value was stolen out of the house that we were staying in. And this story ends up climaxing with a village stakeout and the police instructing me that when the guy runs out of his house, which we had identified, to run after him and tackle him. Okay, I didn't have to do that, fortunately, but that's, that's this story of our honeymoon. The second is when our family made a stop in Memphis on our way home from uh, Christmas in Tulsa. We spent the night, we stopped in the morning at a little hipster coffee shop. We're in there for about an hour. When we walked outside, our windows of our car had been shattered and all of our stuff was stolen, okay? So if you've had an experience like this, you know this is a vulnerable feeling. And this man had been badly beaten as well. So not only was his stuff stolen, he was beaten, and he was left on the side of the road for dead. So the story tells us three things. He's vulnerable because he has no clothes. 
okay? It's a vulnerable experience. He's been beaten, so he's weak and he's unable to move on his own strength, okay? So he's vulnerable, he's beaten, and he's left for dead, which is basically he's been forgotten about. He's been left, okay? He's vulnerable, he's beaten, and he's forgotten about. The hearer is meant to think, what if that were me? What if I were in that place? And it says that a priest walked by. Now, the word for priest is really the idea of one who puts God on display for the world, okay? A representative, an intermediary in the broadest sense. This is a person who's supposed to represent God. That's his job, is to represent God. And yet this very person does not show the heart of God. That's what we were supposed to see in this story. He walks on the other side. Then we have a Levite, and a Levite is another way of kind of saying priest. Growing up, I remember in our lessons, I used to hear that it was like an assistant priest, or it was a, um, it was a uh, worship leader, or somebody who curated the temple. Any of those could fit the Levite. So there are really like two temple authorities who have walked by here and have passed by on the other side. The people who are supposed to show the heart of God, the people who are supposed to reflect the heart of God, and these people are the ones who don't do it. They pass this guy by. Now, why did they pass on the other side? Well, it wasn't simply that they couldn't be bothered, but in the Jewish purity laws, one of the worst, most impure things you could do was to touch a dead body. You weren't supposed to do that, okay? In fact, if you touched a dead body, you would be considered outside of the temple because you were considered unclean and impure. So they couldn't tell if this guy was dead. So they're kind of glancing and they're going, is he dead? Is he not dead? I don't think we can risk it. And they kept walking along, okay? So that's what's going on here. So they chose to keep their purity as opposed to obeying the deeper point of the law to love your neighbor, All right? That's what's happening here. They were right, but they weren't right in the deeper sense. Does that make sense? They chose a more superficial rightness. <laughs> I, I think of C.S. Lewis when he um, talks about in the Narnia stories, the deeper magic. So there's the magic and then there's the deeper magic. All right, those of you who don't know that, you won't get that, but still. Um, there's a deeper point of the law to love your, love your neighbor as yourself. So right here, what Jesus is doing is he's calling out the existing temple structure. These men represent the temple. They represent the place where God lives. And they have become so corrupt that they are the ones who have become too busy to care for the man, too obsessed with the superficial rightness and not the deeper rightness. And we understand this narrative of corrupt leadership, okay? We hear about this all the time in books, in film, in our political discourse. This is a common trope, a common narrative. The people who are in charge, the people who are supposed to get it right, don't get it right, right? The everyday people get it right instead. So the hearers are intended to think, our leaders don't really care about healing or restoration or dignity. This is what our leaders have done to Israel. As we have been brutally hurt by the Roman regime, they have left us for dead. They've forgotten about us. Now, this message that we might call a populist message, it's this message that says the leaders never have it right. The everyday people have it right. This is a powerful message, but it only goes so far, okay? We can't leave the story right there. We can't say this is just a story about corrupt leadership, okay? 
This story would have been somewhat common so far. So Jesus is telling a story that wouldn't have shocked them so far, okay? There was an expected outcome. So what the hearers expect from the story is like, okay, you've got these leaders, you've got these priests, you've got these representatives that are gonna go by. They represent the establishment and they're unconcerned. And then what they expect is this third man who would come would be an everyday, ordinary Jewish person, okay? So you have the corrupt leaders that walk by and then the point of this story is to show it's not the leaders who have it right. We need to overthrow the leaders. It's the everyday guy. It's the everyday person who has it right. That's what they're expecting from this story. And he would come and he would rescue his neighbor, his fellow Israelite. That's what this is about. That's what neighboring is all about. Not the ruling class, but the everyday, the mundane and the simple. That's what they're expecting here. And we hear this message a lot in our culture. It's a good message, right? So many of our stories are are about rulers who are babbling idiots, (laughs) shown up by humble folks, about emperors having no clothes, right? About corrupt priests being undone by simple everyday people. That's a common thing in our language. We love to overthrow the establishment. We love the populist message, don't we? The everyday person is better than the one in power. The proletariat will overthrow the bourgeoisie. We love these kinds of things. Jesus, just end the story there. That's good, we got it, great. But this message is limited. It only goes so far. It's a great message, but it only goes so far. The populist anti-ruler message is good and necessary because power often leads to corruption. But the critique of leaders is nothing if it's not replaced with something. We can call out injustice and evil systems all day long, but we also need hope that there is something that will put this right. There's something that will make this better. So we have this populist message. Another thing we often read in this story that's right and good and true is an ethical message. Jesus doesn't end the story here. The next character is a Samaritan. If you were a Jewish person, the Samaritans were considered wrong. They were considered outsiders. Why? Well, you have to go way back into the story of the Old Testament. The northern kingdom of Israel split from the southern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom was considered later Samaria. And they had been conquered by the Assyrians. Okay, so the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians did what a lot of empires did. They took a chunk of those people in the northern kingdom of Israel and they scattered them all throughout the rest of their, their kingdoms throughout the civilized world, okay? So they sent all of those people. And then they brought in other people and replaced them in that place. So what used to be the kingdom of Israel is now the same place, but it has some people who are part of Israel and it has some people from all different other nations, So what happened is those people in the northern kingdom began to intermarry with other people, right? And so then the people in the southern kingdom considered them half-breeds, okay? They considered them intermingled and intermarried. So they weren't quite pure. They weren't quite faithful in their mind. What also happened is there was a religious distinction. The people in the northern kingdom, since they didn't live near Jerusalem, they didn't accept Jerusalem as the home of God's presence, They had another mountain that they worshiped on. And then they also didn't accept any of the language uh, that had to do with Jerusalem in the Bible. So all of the prophets, they rejected all that and they only embraced the Torah, okay? So you have this animosity between these two groups because the Jews think that the Samaritans are half-breeds and they're unfaithful, okay? So that's what's going on with all of this. 
So they, they, they did all of that. And so Jesus shocks his hearers when there's a Samaritan who comes in as the hero of the story. The Samaritan is the one, not the everyday Jewish faithful guy, the outsider, the half-breed, the one who's part of the unfaithful group. He sees him and he takes pity on the man. He bandages his wounds. He pours oil and wine on them. That's like essential oils, I think, today, right? And that's um, healing. He put the man on his own donkey and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. He paid the innkeeper and he said that he would make sure to cover any additional cost in the future. He said, here's my credit card for incidentals for this guy, right? And then Jesus asks, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer said, couldn't even say the Samaritan guy. <laughs> he said, the one who had mercy on him. So our temptation in reading to this is to maybe think, and we often think this way, that this is just a moral or ethical command story, right? To think it's a story about thinking about our neighbors and our enemies differently, about caring just as the Samaritan cared. And that's true, right? Just like the populist message of cr criticizing leaders and calling out those in power is true. The ethical and moral imperative here is true. We are supposed to be like the Samaritan. We are supposed to live differently, but it's not just an ethical story. That story only goes so far. The story of a critique of leaders, the populist story, it's, it's limited. And then the moral story, the ethical story is good, but also limited. Fleming Rutledge talks about how preachers are often so tempted to end sermons with this phrase. So let us, followed by a moral command, all right? Let us do this and that and this. The implicit message is here's what God done, has done for us. Now let's go do something for him, okay? But that's not the purpose of a sermon. <laughs> the sermon is never about our work and just getting to us to act better. That should never be the point. The goal is not just to inspire us to do things. When we hear the word of the Lord, we hear that God is acting in the world. He continues to act in the world. The kingdom of God doesn't move forward because of our action, but because of God's action. The ethical message is good, but never quite enough. What is the source of our ethics? What kind of people are we becoming that changes the world? Why are we called to love our neighbor as ourselves? So where is God in this text? I encourage you, and anytime you read scripture, to think first, where is God here? Where is God in this story? Where is God in this passage? It's a critique of the establishment, but it's not just a critique of the establishment. It's an ethical command, but it's not just an ethical command. What is Jesus doing here? Well, I think one of the keys to this story is Hosea chapter six. In Hosea chapter six, the prophet testifies of a God who re will restore Israel from their broken state. And it was believed at that time, and the way that a lot of the Old Testament um, prophets speak is they give God the agency for everything. So in other words, Israel goes about living their life and doing what they're supposed to do, and then God does everything to them, <laughs> everything good and everything bad. That's just kind of how the Old Testament prophets speak. Now, we would look at that today, and we would go, gosh, you got conquered by an enemy. You can't say that God did that. <laughs> that was an enemy that conquered you, right? But it's the way that they speak about it. 
because they have this like trust in God where they go, he's just gonna send us wherever he sends us, okay? Um, So anytime Israel found themselves in captivity, they believed, well, God led us here. And he led us here to show us a better way to live. So the empires weren't just the ones who hurt them. It was God described as the agent. So in this passage, you'll see that here. But it says, God will now restore them. So it says in Hosea 6, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Heal, bind up our wounds, revive and restore. That's what Hosea says God will do. I don't think it's a stretch to say this sounds exactly like what the Good Samaritan did. To heal, bind up our wounds, and revive and restore. The Good Samaritan here does the work of God, the work of new creation. And if you remember from last week, as we've explored Luke's telling of the story, Jesus is currently, he's telling these stories, he's teaching as he's on a journey on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross. He was on the exact, about to be on the exact part of the road that he's describing in this story. What is Jesus saying? I think he's saying that he is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the good Samaritan, the unlikely one who carries forward God's healing work of new creation. That he's saying that Hosea 6 is coming true for the Israelites and it is indeed coming true for the whole world. The one who brings healing is here, but it will require new eyes to see. There is a new kingdom where anti-establishment messages and purely ethical messages are not enough. We can't critique or moralize our way through this new creation and this new world. We need a good Samaritan to heal us. Jesus puts himself in the place of the outcast one, the half-breed, the one who wasn't faithful, and also the one who brings healing. So Jesus is asking Can you recognize the Samaritan as your neighbor? Can you recognize the kingdom of God in a form that you would never expect? If you don't have eyes to see that, you might miss me, Jesus says. You may be left for dead. This was shocking to Jesus's hearers, mostly faithful Jewish people, because what he's saying is, you, Israel, are the one in the ditch. You're the one who's been left for dead, and I have come to heal you. True healing only happens when we humble ourselves and we realize that we're helpless and we need God. Okay, so if this is not just a critique of the establishment, if it's not just an ethical command, what does this story tell us about mission and who we are as the people of God? When we surrender our own need for control, we are better able to see his face in the foreigner, in the stranger, and in our enemy. When we live life by the Spirit of God, we are able to see every person we encounter as someone who can be used by God to heal the world and even be part of God's healing of us. So that means that your neighbor, who's of a different faith than the Christian faith, 
is a gift from God and we can trust that God is at work in their heart and is not even dependent on us. But we are called to celebrate and rejoice and join in God's work. That means the homeless woman on the street that you pass by is not a nuisance, but an embodiment of the kingdom of God. That she may be in the ditch in need of salvation, yes, but you also may be in the ditch and you need her as she carries healing, hope, and restoration by her challenge of us. The person at work who you cannot stand may be the very one who's teaching something to you about the heart of God. I think that's so, that's a realization that has challenged me as I go, um, now I'm, I'm trying on my good days to lean in to the people who annoy me the most, right? To go, okay, this person messes with me. God, what are you trying to show me in this? Like, <laughs> all right, I'm gonna lean in a little bit more. I'm gonna lean in, it's not gonna be comfortable, but I'm gonna lean a little bit more and see what that person teaches me about the heart of God. And not just these extreme cases, but that means that neighbor includes everyday people in your life, not just the down and out. Your literal neighbor <laughs> carries the heart of God, right? I don't know about you, but it's really easy in our world to just walk by our neighbors and not say a word, okay? Um, in, in an apartment complex, I've noticed as we've lived here in Nashville over the past six years, it's a little easier when we lived in a, in a cul-de-sac in a neighborhood, it's a little easier to just kind of drive by, hit the garage door, run in real quick and shut it, right? <laughs> but uh, when we don't really have garages very much here in Nashville either. But, um, but, but all that to say, like now we pass people all the time and inquire about their lives. It's a little bit easier, but it's still easy sometimes to just keep our head down, keep my headphones in and keep walking by. What is God trying to speak through my neighbor? And we are invited to love and serve them. Jesus is inviting us to see the world in a different way, where those who think they are right and justified by their works or their status are revealed for who they truly are. And those who have been considered the scum of the earth, but have humbly, humbly come before the Lord are forgiven. Why? Because of grace. This is all upside down. This passage is supposed to turn everything upside down where the person who brings healing is the most unlikely person, where the person who should have it right doesn't have it right. That's grace. The way of Jesus shows us that this is good news for the whole world and not just for a few. In closing, the, the Good Samaritan calls us to an, a new identity, to be a people of love. This requires surrender to God, which will call us to give our lives away to others. Who are the people in our lives who we encounter every day? Think about those people. And then I think encounter is even broader now too, because we live in a world that's so interconnected everywhere that we encounter situations and we encounter people every day that may live halfway across the world and are in need, right? God calls us to join with his kingdom built on self-giving love. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the challenge of this passage today. I know that I, speaking for myself, have been uh, tempted to just see this passage only as a critique of leaders, that they gotta get their act right and get it straight 
or only as a moral imperative. Well, if we could just love people better, just be more like the Good Samaritan, that's really the goal. But Lord, help us to see you in the unlikely places. Lord, our prayer is that we would be challenged by you, shaken up by you, that we'd be challenged to lean into those unlikely spaces, those places that messes, mess with our sense of prejudice or our um, separation or purity, whatever that is. And Lord, we trust you in the midst of, a, in the midst of it. Help us to be on the lookout for you, <laughs> to see your face in the stranger, in the foreigner, and in our neighbor. We trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.